Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast, episode number 73. My name is Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders of Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On today's episode, we're going to be chatting with the one and only Matt Bromley about some cutting-edge intel coming out of the Lima Charlie community Slack channel. Here we are again, another week, another set of bad actors, malicious code, and compromised systems. We're back once again to talk about some of the cutting-edge intel being shared by our awesome community in the Lima Charlie Slack channel. And as always, a huge thank you to all those folks that take the time to share their knowledge with the rest of us. I'm joined once again by the one and only Matt Bromley, who is here to help us make sense of what we're seeing coming through the wire. How are you doing today, Matt? Hey, Chris, doing well, doing well. It's uh, starting to get into a little bit of a fall season where I'm at, so we're getting a little colder, a little rainier. But uh, other than that, doing well and, you know, definitely still feeling a lot of the uh, love and momentum that we got from our Lima Charlie Mission Control Conference that we had a few weeks ago and and just, uh, you know, looking forward to kind of what the community is working and building on. But the chat today is focused on our Intel channel and some of the great stuff coming out of there. But the larger community as a whole is just giving me really good vibes lately. Awesome. All right. Well, let's get to it. So the first one, it's not so much of a threat report, but rather an interesting article published by the folks at Sentinel One talking about emerging trends and evolving techniques for Mac OS malware in 2023. I know for a fact that on this show, we've talked a lot about macOS malware this year, and it's hard not to think this is a place where threat actors are spending more and more effort. The biggest change they noted came with info stealers on macOS that are not concerned about persistence and that strive to achieve all their objectives in one execution. Stealing the user's admin passwords, browsing data, session cookies, and keychain, and then exfiltrating these off to a remote server. Once the attackers have this info, they can gain access to cloud or SaaS accounts that the user has credentials and cookies for. The article also points out the rise in offensive security tools in the macOS environment, specifically citing projects like Geekon that wrap Cobalt Strike capabilities in Go-based payloads. These have been seen embedded in fake versions of enterprise-level apps like SecureLink and Beacon out to command and control infrastructure in China. The example given in the article used job resumes as the initial infection vector. Uh, Finally, the article also outlines some living-off-the-land techniques they are observing being used by threat actors, and given it's the Apple ecosystem, they're calling them living-off-the-orchard techniques. There is a link through to another article that lists the most common living-off-the-orchard commands you might see. Would probably be an easy spot to get inspiration for making some detections if this is something that keeps you up at night. What say you, Matt Bromley? Any surprises here? No, I think this is a really good summary of of some of the kind of latest things that we've seen coming about from from a malware, from a threat actor perspective and things like that. Uh, I do think one of the things that I appreciated the most out of this was, uh, you know, the fact that they focused on how I I love that living off the orchard type of thing. I think that was an awesome reference right there. But, um, you know, I, I think tapping into how threat actors are utilizing the Mac OS ecosystem um, some of the different things that they've been using and whatnot. You know, they do mention in the article that Apple continued to work on kind of its own internal detection and and protection mechanisms and things like that. But threat actors keep finding a way around it. And, you know, if you had told me, you know, five, seven, ten years ago that Mac was going to end up being kind of, you know, would get its own article where it was getting a focus of malware and things like that, I would have said, nah, no way, no way. But now we're actually seeing it, which I think just goes to, or I should say continues to show just how prominent of an operating system and how prominent of a system it is within um, organizations these days. So, you know, I think the the fact that they were able to focus on Mac-specific malware and Mac-specific techniques was great. Other than that, it's like, you know, spear phishing, watch out for spear phishing, watch out for kind of the public offensive security tools and things like that, you know, 
um, the, uh, the, the Geekin, if you will, and that is the uh, Cobalt Strike capability wrapped in Go payloads, I think is an interesting one that kind of highlights where threat actors are going from a Mac abuse perspective. But again, uh, I find it to be, you know, a useful insight. And for anyone who's in the Mac detection, engineering and stuff like that, this is a, a must read. Yeah. All right. So the next one up is from the researchers of Unit 42 of Palo Alto. Black Hat operators recently announced new updates to their tooling, including a utility called Munchkin that allows attackers to propagate the Black Hat payload to remote machines and shares on a victim organization network. For the past two years, the Black Hat ransomware operators have continued to evolve and iterate their tooling as part of their ransomware-as-a-service business model. As part of this recent investigation, researchers acquired an instance of Munchkin that is unique in that it is loaded in a customized Alpine virtual machine. This new tactic of leveraging a customized VM to deploy malware has been gaining traction in recent months, allowing ransomware threat actors to use VMs to circumvent security solutions in deploying their malware payloads. The article has a lot of technical details and even includes some YAR rules that can be used for detections. What do you think, Matt? Is using a customized VM like this real innovation on the threat actor's part or just a different variation of a thing we've seen before? Yeah, a lot of times for me, this feels like, uh, you know, a different variation, right? A way to get around a, a technique, a detection mechanism, a security control or something along those lines, right? I, I always look at these as, you know, a, a kind of an advancement, if that, if you will. Um, I think, you know, launching a custom VM to deploy malware is, is just another way to get around like EDR-based detection and stuff like that. Because look, you know, how many endpoint detection products and other things like that are going to watch for deployment of a VM and then auto-deploy themselves on there? Absolutely not. So it's a way to definitely work around, I think, some of the detection, you know, mechanisms that are, that are typically in place and whatnot. Um, the other thing is, I don't know, this is the first threat actor that's done this. I think we've seen this used before by some threat actors. Um, especially, you know, when it comes to finding novel ways through highly secure environments and things like that. I, I do find it interesting, uh, Munchkin being, you know, that, that, that particular name. And I think that there's always a little bit of a tongue in cheek to naming malware and naming threat actors and whatnot. But in this case, you know, I, I, I gotta say, it, it's just another thing that adversaries are doing to make it more interesting or perhaps more difficult to detect them. But I would kind of counter a little bit in the same tone, in the same note, and say, though you're also creating a ridiculous amount of noise on a system if you're utilizing a mechanism like this. You know, you're creating a virtual machine. Number one, uh, you're going through and spinning up resources. There's all sorts of things that come associated with that. And who knows, right? There, there might be a possibility for a detection there to simply say, hey. This is a VM that we did not expect to be popping up or anything like that. And again, I'm using kind of very, very high level terms here. But, you know, the creation of a VM is not a stealthy mechanism whatsoever. I understand it's probably worked for the group and they probably found success with it, which is why they keep doing it and whatnot. But I would argue and say this would be one that could probably benefit for some really easy detection just because it is so noisy, uh, you know, in order to get working. Yeah, probably only working because it's novel at this point, but as soon as it gets on everybody's radar, it's a real easy one to protect against. I would think so, just given the amount of noise that's there. You know, this is not living off the land or hiding in the background, right? This is uh, this is very much like loud and proud. I'm here, I made a VM in your environment, and I'm, I'm going to deploy some malware with it. All right. Uh, the next one is one I've seen people talk about in a few places, but the article I'm citing here is from the researchers at Census. On October 16, Cisco released an advisory regarding a critical zero-day privilege escalation vulnerability in their iOS XE web UI software. 
The vulnerability, tracked as CBE-2023-20198, has already been used to exploit tens of thousands of devices to install a backdoor. On October 18th, researchers witnessed an increase in the number of infections from 34,140 to 41,983 hosts. This vulnerability has the highest criticality score of 10 and can be exploited remotely without authentication, granting the attacker full administrative privileges. What do we do with this one, Matt? These numbers are incredible and the level of criticality is disturbing. Oh, yeah. I mean, but, you know, this is another one of those situations where we're once again talking about a, a widespread critical vulnerability on typically public-facing devices that you can take advantage of without any authentication or credentials or things like that, you know? So I, I would say if, if I zoom out high enough, Chris, I think the bucket that this falls into is becoming more and more common, unfortunately, right? We, we really don't want to be running into this as much as we are. Um, that being said, you know, the number of, uh, I should say, the growth in devices that they've seen, it all comes down to opportunistic scanning, right? It comes down to a, a, a public POC or an easy ability to, you know, recognize and then exploit these devices and that kind of stuff. And with, a, you know, a weaponized mass scanning, mass identification and things like that. And, uh, you know, it just, it, it, it comes down to once again, right? Adversaries are going to adversary. They, they found a way to exploit it. They weaponized it. They're doing it at scale. We're seeing the numbers that prove that they are. And that's going to continue to rise until we see patches and that kind of stuff come in place. You know, it, it's going to work that way. And I think it's something to watch out for. Uh, you know, I'm not so much like go patch, patch, patch and everything. I think more of the focus here for us is just how quickly it's being weaponized and scanned out right now. Yeah, and that's where services like Shodan and stuff work against the good guys. Yeah, in that case, it makes it a little bit easier and uh, a little bit easier for them to find it, I should say. But at the same time, we get advantage, take advantage of the same exact statistics, right? So it works both ways. Yeah. All right, next up, uh, WizSecure Labs is reporting that Vietnamese cybercrime groups are using multiple different malware as a service info stealers and remote access Trojans to target digital market to target the digital marketing sector. These actors greatly value Facebook business accounts, and hijacking these accounts appears to be one of their primary goals. According to the researchers, the targeting and methods of these groups heavily overlap to an extent that suggests they are a closely related cluster of operators or groups. The researchers claim to be able to identify campaigns carried out by these groups through non-technical indicators such as their lure topics, lure files, and associated metadata. Do you think we can make this assumption that the groups are related based on the items indicated? Given they're using these malware as a service type operations, I can't help but wonder if maybe they're all just reading the same how-to doc from the malware provider. Yeah, it's a good observation, Chris. And actually, uh, you know, a really interesting thing to point out there is when we, you know, w when we're looking at people utilizing the same service, how do we clearly differentiate between them and whatnot? And and I think you and I have talked about on on episodes before you know, adversaries know each other. They talk to each other. They share tips and tricks and things like that. So who's to say that two adversaries didn't attend the same seminar and walk away with the same types of malware techniques and whatnot, you know, from a from a somewhat uh, joking perspective, but also from a somewhat very serious perspective as well. You know, in this case, I, I think we got to be careful with just how much we're, we're relying on overlaps when it comes to the use of malware as a service and, and different, you know, as a service things. Of course, I haven't, you know, myself worked a breach that involved these, so I haven't seen the, you know, the things kind of firsthand and whatnot. But when I read through the article and look at some of the technical details and everything like that, I, I think that the way that they're picking up on the similarities here 
especially kind of the entry vectors that are being used, the URL shorteners and some of the other things that are, you know, commonly used or, or I should say maybe well known, but are not utilized in the same string or the same stream of events. That's most likely where they're getting a lot of their attribution from is just exactly, you know, just how they are um, utilizing it and the steps that they're taking, right? And, and Chris, I, I think in that aspect, you know, if, if I, the example I've used before with folks is, is let's say you and I both grow to the grocery store and we've got a shopping list with 10 items on it, right? And for, for whatever reason, I start from one to 10 and you start and you go 10 to one and we kind of work, away, work our way around the store and we both end up in the same place, but we went about it a different way. So our behavior felt a little different. But if we both go to the grocery store and we both go after items five, six, three, four, eight, nine, one, ten, two, right? That sequence is a little too kind of pre-programmed to be able to say, oh yeah, that was just at random for the both of them and stuff like that. So I think, you know, when, when you see a sequence of events take place and, and you see a lot of overlap in that way, I, I, I think, you know, it could be a crossover of them using the same services, but it could also be kind of a, we're taking the same approach to this. Right. Maybe a Discord group they're all exchanging notes on or something. Yeah, who knows? Maybe or that or uh, sitting at the bar one night and someone else is complaining and saying, you know, I, I, I can't get in. My, my entry vectors aren't working. And someone's like, oh, go try this thing. And next thing you know, right, PDF salary products PDF is a, a common threat actor technique. Who knows? All right. Well, I, I really didn't like this one. The FBI in Phoenix is warning the public of a new scam dubbed the Phantom Hacker. Scammers are impersonating technology, banking, and government officials in a complex ruse to convince typically older victims that foreign hackers have infiltrated their financial accounts. The scammers then instruct the victim to immediately move their money to an alleged U.S. government account to, quote-unquote, protect their assets. In reality, there was never any foreign hacker, surprise, and the money is now fully controlled by the scammers. Some victims are losing their entire life savings. Uh, reading through the steps on this one, I'm kind of baffled that people fall for this, but understand that fear drives a lot of the victim's actions. And given the targets are older people, there's generally less tech savviness. Uh, if anything, I think this one is a reminder to educate those folks around us that could potentially fall victim to something like this. Matt, have you got any general advice for our listeners out there to share with their parents or grandparents? I would think not transferring your money into a different account would be a great start. Yeah. So funny thing you mentioned this, Chris, I got one of these last night. Uh, I got myself got one of these last night and I'm not even making this timeline up. If anyone who's listening to this wants to see proof, let me know. I'll send you the screenshots. But um, I got one of these last night and I'm not going to lie. There was a brief moment. It may have been two seconds. It may have been three seconds, but there was a brief moment where I said to myself, "Uh oh, and not because I knew I was getting scammed, but because I was like, oh no, right? And I, I got I got a text message. I got a text message that said, hey, financial institution has reported suspicious activity. Please log in and uh, change your information if this was not you, right? Now, they didn't give me a link or anything. They said, go log in and change your information if this was not you. And the text was almost one for one of what you get from a legitimate service, right? Now, where this becomes tricky is if you read the emails or the fine print, uh, sometimes it's a big notification, but depending on where you see it, a lot of these companies will be like, hey, look, you know, bank of whatever will never call you and ask you for your information. And what they're trying to do is let you know that, hey, if the bank reaches out to you and asks for this information, okay, 
it, it, it's not us. And they're trying to kind of set that stage up there and, and say, hey, we warned you about this, right? But where it gets the edge of gear is like, I can turn on text-based notifications for my for some of my financial accounts. So I paused and I was like, uh-oh. So sure enough, I actually, and this is the crazy part, I, I went to, just in case someone was monitoring, right? I went to a clean virtual machine that I had ready in a machine somewhere. Don't ask me about that side of paranoia, but I did. I logged in to one of my accounts and I saw that no transfer activity had taken place, all right? So at this point, I was like, all right, uh, you know, I could, I'm someone who has a lot of experience with these types of things in catching these actors and stuff like that too. And even I went as far as to like, let me go check my account to see if something actually happened. Right. And this is where I think it, you can actually introduce a fail safe for some folks who, who typically fall victim to this. If someone calls you and says, Hey, your financial accounts have been hacked and you're losing your life savings, go log in and check that. I'm not going to wait for someone to call me and tell me, right, quote unquote, someone to call me, right, a fake person or whatever, a scammer. I'm going to go look myself. And then sure enough, not five minutes later, I got another text message from the exact same number. And it said, um, you know, the activity on your account has been paused due to malicious IP address activity. We will be calling you to verify this. Please use case ID, blah, 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 in the text message. And at that point, I was like, uh-huh, there it is, right? There's that two-step. There's that second step, which says, hey, someone's going to be calling you to ask you about this kind of thing. So if I had to give anyone any advice on this one, it's like, first off, your banks usually don't reach out for this kind of stuff. Um, however, I will say I've been traveling on vacation before and used a card overseas or something. I get a phone call from the bank that says, hey, are you actually in whatever country? And I'm like, do I give you legitimate information or what? Because I don't know, right? You told me you'd never call me. So that part's tough. So what I'm trying to say is, even if you read the fine print, sometimes in situations, banks will even break their own rules and say like, well, this could be fraud. So we're going to call because that's the fastest way to get there. What I usually say is, if I am a older elderly person or someone who, who might fall victim to this kind of stuff, someone tells me my account's been hacked, I'm going to go double check. Number one, just go log in, right? Just go log in and double check. Number two, if any of that information is ever, you know, uh, followed up with, please go install this thing so I can fix it, stop. I do not care what it is they're trying to install, what the soft story they tell you is. There is never, and this one I'll, I, I'm not going to obviously guarantee, but I'll stand behind. There is never a situation I've ever observed where a bank will call you, tell you that you're losing your money, and then tell you to install some software so they can help you fix it. Hell, yo. The money is on their side. There is no software on your side that can prevent this from happening, right? So one thing that I found worked for me in the past, because I used to do a lot of business email compromise cases. I know I've mentioned that before on this podcast, is I would just go to work with folks and be like, hey, forget the technology side of things. Let's just understand the basic flow of money and understand if what someone's telling you is legitimate or not, right? Someone calls you and says, hey, you're losing all your money you need to log in to the bank with my software in order to save it. That's not how the flow of money works. It's not how banks work. And I found that if you just kind of work through that with someone, it gives them that mental ability to just pause for a second and say, hold on a second. I know this isn't how the flow of money works. Something's not right here. And the moment your gut comes in and says, something's not right here, hang up, you're done. Call your computer savvy nephew or grandson or whatever, tell them what's up and they'll give you the best advice. 
Yeah, that's great advice. And, and you can always call the bank directly too and uh, use that the too. number on the back yep. of your card or something. Absolutely. And then when you're done and going through all that and you've effectively shut the adversaries down, go on YouTube and watch the videos of people scamming the scammers and enjoy it. All right. The last one for today is from Google's Threat Analysis Group, or TAG, which has recently observed multiple government-backed hacking groups exploiting the known vulnerability CVE-2023-38831 in WinRAR, which I'm sure most of our listeners know is a popular shareware file archiving tool for Windows. Uh, Cybercrime groups began exploiting the vulnerability in early 2023, when the bug was still unknown to defenders. A patch has since been made available, but many users are still vulnerable. TAG has observed government-backed actors from a number of countries exploiting the WinRAR, WinRAR vulnerability as part of their operations. A patched version of the software was released on August 2023. If you are using WinRAR and have not updated since then, you should probably go do so. Uh, what do we do with this one, Matt? This feels like one of those ones that will be around for a long time. Yeah, this is another one of those pieces of software that's just so ubiquitous throughout the or, you know the ecosystem, if you will, that... It's likely something that's probably going to be around for for a little while and whatnot. And, and I think you know this one definitely took a little bit of digging as well. Uh, this one has been observed, if, if I remember correctly, has been observed to be ex exploited in the wild by cybercrime actors since April of 2023 and whatnot. And I think you know, first off, uh, understand if there's WinRAR usage within your environment. Uh, I know that sounds a lot easier said than done for a lot of organizations, but. You know, if this is something that shouldn't even be in there in the first place, that's an easy detection capability and maybe even a process stop, right? Because when rar.exe or rar.exe has to run for this thing to actually be exploited, I'm going to work to shut that down, right? Number one. Number two, you know, I, I also think that uh, this is a, a situation where organizations are likely going to get bit a lot by you know, kind of people bringing their own software to the table and stuff. And I don't mean someone like writing their own software, but look, I, I myself have been in plenty of situations where I needed to get something open and it was sent to me in a RAR file, completely legitimate file. And and I needed WinRAR to open it, right? I, I needed another way to get through it. And that's just the way that it was. Like I needed WinRAR. I didn't go through any checks or whatnot. So I, I think this is maybe more where like software, asset, inventory management and stuff like that um, becomes an important tool because it lets you do a quick profile to see if this type of thing's out there, if it's necessary, if it's needed. We're getting definitely a little bit into like shadow IT ops and whatnot when we talk about downloading maybe non-approved programs or something like that. Um, but I would say this one would be one that I would want to put detection rules together for. If WinRAR is not something uh, typically seen in my environment, then I'm going to go look for it, right? Again, lots of noise, easy to detect, very predictable, executable names and things like that. Um, and there's also... A, uh, and of course, I'm going off the blog post from Tag. Huge props over to Kate Morgan for providing this to us. But I'm going off of the different file names and stuff that were provided as well. Um, and, you know, kind of in the file names that were provided here, uh, this is where you get a chance to write even stronger and higher fidelity detections. Like th this should be something that you should be able to utilize detection software for pretty quickly. Um, because again, it is an entry vector. Uh, if I'm, if again, if I'm understanding this correctly, right, it's an entry vector um, that, that comes in. It's not necessarily the uh you know the kind of the, the last step of it if you will and whatnot I, I think it's part of the entry vector getting getting into the organization and whatnot so with that being said detection 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 as always and then work to understand the software that's in your environment well 
that's it for another week of the uh, Intel chat here on the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. Thanks once again for joining us, Matt, and thanks to the Lima Charlie community. As always, love it. Thanks for being here. And again, Chris, I'll echo that sentiment. Huge nod to our Intel chat, and we'll catch you again next time. All right. Take care, sir. Awesome. And that concludes this episode of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. You can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie community Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.